we're on the cusp of some pretty big breakthroughs. So I think the future looks bright, but I think it's not without risk. Welcome back, Hidden in Plain Sight listeners. I'm your host, Chad Grills, and I'm back for season two of the show. I'm excited to kick off this season, and I'm especially excited to be able to kick it off with one of my all-time favorite subjects, science fiction. Science fiction is more than a tool for entertainment. Sci-fi stories hold the power to help us imagine potential futures and solutions to critical problems. They're an exercise in thinking beyond our present understandings, biases, and technologies. Sci-fi can even act as a guidebook to help us find our way out of near-term problems facing humanity. That's why in today's episode, I sat down with one of the most successful self-published science fiction authors of all time, A.G. Jerry Riddle. Jerry has a background as a technology entrepreneur. He's written sci-fi books like Atlantis Gene, which was an incredible trilogy, and Pandemic, a book whose current utility and research goes far beyond entertainment. In today's episode, we talk about COVID, culture, science fiction's role in everything, how we can solve some of these big problems, plus how to think about data and models being used to discuss the pandemic. Plus, Jerry shares what he learned from creating his book, Pandemic, that might be applicable to the teams and people looking for a better way to think about the current crisis, as well as how to prepare for the next ones. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jerry Riddle. Enjoy. This season of Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. Splunk helps organizations worldwide turn data into doing. It's time for data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Learn more at splunk.com or by clicking the link in our show notes. Jerry, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So you are a sci-fi author. You're a former founder of multiple tech companies, and you have a number of books, including Pandemic. We've talked a lot about existential threats before, and I wanted to get you back on the show to talk about this recent pandemic and kind of get on the same page and see where you're at and where the future of this thing is going. So thanks for joining us. It's a wild time to be alive, man. Obviously, a global pandemic is something I've been very concerned about for a long time. I mean, the book pandemic came out in April of 2017. So that's about three years ago and took me two years to write. And um, it's, you know, it's really surreal. When you started researching pandemic, what was the first thread that you followed? Was it just uh, a worry about this? Were you studying history and the Black Plague? Uh, What brought you to that? Well, you know, I've always been intrigued by the idea of a pandemic. I've always thought that uh, it's sort of the biggest um, sort of large scale risk factor, you know, to the human race. And I think with urbanization in China and the third world, it, it was only a matter of time. And, and so with the book, I, my focus was trying to take readers inside of what it would be like to be part of a CDC or a WHO team that fights one of these. Cause I think if you can understand when pandemic came out in 2017, a lot of, a lot of what we saw up until then were, uh, you know, were Ebola type outbreaks, viral hemorrhagic fevers in Africa. Those are the things that got the most press. And obviously there was some respiratory viruses coming out of uh, Middle East and Southeast Asia. But my feeling was that if people understood at a basic level or had a, a working understanding of disease fighting and, and the way outbreaks progress that, that we're all better off. Um, I think, you know, the, 
uh, jury's kind of out on whether that book accomplished what I had hoped. I mean, it certainly sold a lot of copies and yet here we are. I think the awareness factor is important because often the media or books or movies, they can kind of prime the public or just individuals at large to become aware of these issues. And if you haven't lived through something and you didn't learn about it in school and you haven't encountered any media about it before, it's generally going to be a foreign concept. So the familiarity aspect, I think, is really important. Um, I view it as kind of a positive propaganda or um, positive education. Did you think of pandemic as something like this where you wanted to get you know wider awareness for this topic? Or were you thinking about it purely from, I just want to explore this. I think it's important. Well, a bit of both. I mean, I, the books to me are, are driven by my own personal interest and, and a lot of it's research interest. And it's like, you know, if you're going to spend two years working on something, it's really, it really needs to be a subject that you're passionate about, that you really want to get up in the morning and learn, learn more about. And, um, you know, in, in college, I worked in clinical trials and we were doing studies on various infectious diseases and developed an interest in it at that time. I mean, so there's that aspect, but there's also my belief that, that one of the great things that books do um, are to help us see the world through other people's eyes. I think we get to walk a mile in their shoes, and I think we get to see the world in a way that we might not have otherwise. And I think books are uniquely powerful in that way, and in a way that TV and video games, I, I don't think, have the same effect. But, you know, the, my feeling was that and to some extent, we see this today that people, there's a sense that, that what's happening and what you see on TV can't happen here. That can't happen in my city and my backyard. And, and I think, you know, in the early part of this year, when we were watching this virus spread and amplify in China, there was this sense of this is something that's happening in China and we're, we're okay. And I think looking in retrospect, I mean, not enough action was taken. And I think, you know, now we're in a position where, to some extent, we get a do-over. I mean, there's, I think, 800,000 cases in the U.S. Um, now is the time to make sure it's not 8 million or 80 million, right? And I still think what concerns me greatly is that there is this sense that this, what's happening in New York City, it can't happen in Raleigh, where I live, or it can't happen in, you know, San Francisco or, or San Jose. So my concern is that we're not learning from, from what we're seeing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think people, when they see data presented on TV or in a very formal way on the news, they tend to take it as gospel, where as right now, if you dig a little bit deeper into it, or if you look at more uh, obscure studies, like there's a recent one done by Stanford researchers that determined there's a good possibility that many people in California were exposed to the virus uh, months before the rest of the country. And there were about you know, 8,000 individuals arriving from China every single day prior to flights being stopped. And this points to some very positive outcomes for, you know, herd immunity and the fact that the infection rate might not be as high as we thought. However, it's something that's still being explored. It's not, you know, 100% certain yet. It's just a speculative study at this point. And it's very helpful for, for determining, you know, who has what antibodies and getting a better handle on the data. However, I don't see many people out there that are, um, you know, understanding or making room for the fact that all the models are flawed. And um, so how do you view 
data right now? Are you, you know, suspect of everything? Uh, are there some sources that you're really trusting? Um, how are you filtering the data through, uh, you know, your trust filter? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough, frankly. I mean, I think um, one of the things when you read the case literatures, uh, literature of outbreaks, I mean, you realize that th- there is no perfect data in any in, in outbreak. I mean, you, you're always going to miss a ton of cases. Typically, you know, fatality rates get a little bit exaggerated because, I mean, the ones you track are the ones who are sick. And, uh, you don't, you know, somebody that has a mild um, disease course who self-treats at home, you know, a ton of those people are not getting tracked, right? Um, but I think what the lens I would look at it through is what is the utility of this data? You know, if this data is correct, is it actionable? And what might it portend for the future, right? Um, so, you know, and you're right, until there is an antibody test, we may never know. And, and, it, and the widespread antibody testing, uh, you know, is expensive. And, you know, is it, does that have utility, you know, at what point? Maybe there's a point in time when it does. And, uh, you know, I think the way I'm looking at the data is I'm not, I have a low confidence level in the numbers I see out of China. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really seem plausible that, that they would have that few infections and we would have this many. I mean, you know, the thing about it is like the, the human genetic code, there really isn't as much variation. I mean, we look very different and, you know, different body shapes and, and different races, but the, there's not a lot of genetic variations. I mean, this is the same kind of people everywhere. So, I mean, you know, if, if what's happening to us in the United States is going to happen to all human populations everywhere where the virus gets loose. Right. And obviously uh, urban settings are at much higher risk and then populations with you know, older population or much more preexisting health condition. Italy is an example are at higher risk. So, you know, when you get data, it's like, um, well, you know, here's the data from Italy. Here's the data from Belgium. Here's the data from Sweden. You can learn a lot because different countries are taking different approaches and you can say, all right, that's what that country did. And here's what happened a month later. And I think we're, I think we're in a position where we can start to hopefully start making more of the right moves based on data, but it it is, it's kind of complex to unpack and to filter. Right. And I think, too, this raises the larger question of how are you building your models? How are you reporting? And with so many different cultural differences and language differences and political differences, now we have this huge challenge where we're forced to you know, look at this. And political leaders or health officials, they're going to have to start asking really hard questions that I think up until recently, many people have been uncomfortable to ask. Because although we have the same genetic code, I think... There are so many different uh, political differences and, you know, how things get reported in a formalized setting that are just, you know, very different um, that we're going to be forced to look at and people are going to be forced to ask, okay, what level of confidence do I have in this nation state in terms of are they reporting accurately? Have they reported things accurately in the past? Um, I see a great opportunity for collaboration, but I think there might be a rocky period of time where in the aftermath of the pandemic, um, I think we might see some pretty chilling things in terms of how different com- countries are going about, you know, reporting this. You know, what's what's really needed is is more global collaboration and the fact that, you know, the, the, the real problem, if you ask me, the real challenge with this virus is the 
what seems to be a fairly long asymptomatic period in which the carrier is contagious. And that is, you know, that's just basically impossible to deal with. I mean, you got people walking around, flying around the planet who COVID positive, negligible symptoms spreading it everywhere. Sure. One of the chilling things I noticed was, you know, the spring break crowd. I don't know if you saw this, but in Florida, you know, a lot of spring breakers were just going about business as usual. When it comes to solving that type of challenge, do we need, you know, a national service? Do we need better education? What type of messaging can we make that is, you know, as voluntary as possible, but at the same time kind of, you know, trains young people uh, for a pandemic or trains them to be prepared when an existential threat uh, happens or attacks us? Um, How can we better prepare young people? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you do, I mean, there are these generational events that change the psyche and change the people's values. And that, that I think is what is really needed. Because if you ask me, I mean, like I said earlier, I think the pandemic was a matter of time, but I also think mercifully this pandemic is not as lethal as it could be. And I mean, things could be a lot worse. I mean, the case fatality rate, I mean, who knows where it'll end up? Maybe it's half a percent up to two or 3%, but, but in context of some other pathogens, that is not terrible. I mean, this is a very contagious virus. Uh, it's deadly for sure. And it, it's killing you know, a lot more people than, than we ought to be comfortable with, but, but it could be a lot worse. And I, so if you ask me what I think is going to happen to the younger generations, when they live through something like this, a lot of them, are going to know someone who got really sick or who passed away. And I do think that it changes the way you approach the next one. And that's my hope, you know? Um, And I think that's because the first time it's kind of like that. I mean, you're young, you feel invincible and you think, yeah, this can't happen to me. And most of them will live through it. A vast, vast majority if they're infected, but their grandparents may not. Um, And that's a big deal. And that's the sort of thing that changes you. I mean, you know, so I do worry about the naivete of people thinking that this can't happen to them. My hope coming on the other side of the COVID-19 pandemic is that we're much more ready for the next one, that we build some sort of, you know, warning system, uh, a more robust disease surveillance system, and that uh, as a, po- a global population, we're more aware and more conscientious. I mean, that's, you know, not the most exciting word in the world, but it is what is needed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, In the early days of the pandemic, prior to social distancing, I had on the director of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory for a second interview, uh, a fascinating guy, Bill Goldstein. And we were talking about how the lab was already in the process of becoming this uh, node for all of the researchers out in the field. They were using their supercomputers and other researchers on staff to basically act as that uh, centralized source that could take in data from all these people that with boots on ground in the field and, um, you know, use their processing power to help crunch numbers and look for trends and pattern match and all that good stuff. Are there any other, you know, nodes or institutions that you followed that you're particularly bullish on for the future of like fighting pandemics, you know, in the course of your research or your study um, have you seen any institutions that you think are doing great work out there? Yeah. I mean, I think problem is that models, you know, predictive models of infection rates and, you know, cases and 
fatality rates for this particular path, I mean, you have to build, you, it's not a one size fits all, so you have to build it based on the pathogen and I think to a certain extent based on the locale. So, you know, predictive model in rural North Carolina looks a lot different than one in uh, Manhattan, right? Because you got a lot more. I mean, the R naught of the virus remains the same, but you you got much more, you know, contact in a, in a dense urban setting, and then you have different healthcare capabilities, right? And then you have a different, let's just say, um, perhaps diligence or disease awareness among population is also a factor that can change the course of an outbreak. Um, you know, the problem with this outbreak, I mean, typically the way you approach it, uh, take Ebola, for example, I mean, you do contact tracing has been pretty successful in Ebola outbreaks. I mean, they, they find someone who presents with Ebola, go back and find everyone they came in contact with and, and quarantine them and see who present. And, and eventually, I mean, they, they've had good success with containment. With something like COVID-19, with a long asymptomatic period and a highly contagious pathogen, contact tracing, I think, has, my personal opinion is it's of limited use um, in this setting. I mean, I think you're much better off to, there are other tools that are, that are more helpful, I think. I mean, but I do think models can be helpful, but uh, I mean, this thing moves so fast, it's like, you know, I don't know, you have to dedicate resources somewhere and you almost, at some point, want to get out of your, your lab or out from in front of your computer and go, you know, volunteer at the food bank or, you know, the local hospital, or, you know, do something out, get plasma if you've beat the virus. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, donating plasma to get a, you know, your antibodies uh, into the larger data set, super important. When it comes to positive news, one of the most exciting things about the pandemic, uh, you know, and I use the word exciting cautiously, but one of the most exciting things for me was seeing, okay, this is the first time that all of humanity has done something on a coordinated scale where with social distancing, not everyone, but a large amount of people have engaged in this practice together. And being able to move in concert as a species, I think was something that before this, we had forgotten how to do. There wasn't that global meta narrative that all humans kind of subscribed to. We were divided by, you know, religion and cultural differences and things like that, 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 but uh, social distancing was one of the first things I'd seen in a long time where we were all moving in unison. Um, what's your take on that? And do you see any positive cultural shifts from this? The big positive I see is that if some of the social distancing and let's just say germ awareness carries over and, you know, I think it fades with time, right? People get a little less diligent, but I think, you know, that's, that's really great. And also, I mean, everyone being at home, it seems like, you know, maybe we're connecting with people that we wouldn't have talked with otherwise. And, and I do think going through a shared experience certainly has the potential to bring us together. And, um, I do think my, my hope is that if there is a next pandemic, and I do think there will be, that this really sets us up for greater success next time, which we may need because the next one could be far worse. You know? Right. And in terms of uh, getting back to a new normal, uh, are there any, you know, the shift to remote work and more remote meetings, I think is going to open up uh, many people to a greater level of productivity. So before this, there weren't many people that were engaging in, you know, Zoom hangouts and there weren't as many people that were open to, you know, taking a meeting on the go, I think. And now we're kind of opening up to, okay, maybe things in the future 
don't look like things did in the past. Um, what type of productivity trends or trends for the workplace do you think might come out of this outside the obvious there? I do think that there is something I think really great about this quarantine and, and it's that life is fast moving these days. I mean, we're in this always own culture of, you know, social messaging and, and t- streaming TV. And I do think being at home causes everyone to kind of discover what they're about and to a certain extent, figure out where they fall on the introvert extrovert scale. Like, I mean, after as an author, I'm, I'm obviously a pretty intense introvert. I rather like being at home and kind of being on my own, working on something. You know, we talk to other authors and full-time authors, and it's kind of like, man, this this has been our life for for me about a decade now. So there hasn't been, I mean, obviously I'm not going out to restaurants and all the other things that I typically do, but you, I do think in, in the quarantine, you kind of figure out what <laughs> what's important to you. And, uh, and so, I, you know, my hope is that people, you know, find a new balance in their life. They say, man, you're not really, really do, do crave human interaction more than I thought. And I need to go out. I need to, you know, get involved in more groups or volunteer. Um, and then I do think there, there is a lot of productivity gains that could be had in the workplace. You know, I did startups before this and, and inevitably the companies would get to a, to a size where, you know, it just became meeting after meeting after meeting. And you had to almost become the meeting police of going, it's like, what are you people meeting about? You know, do you need to be having this meeting? Like, go, go, go do some work. And, and I think, um, you know, there's probably something to be like when you're at home and on your own, it, it's, it's a, maybe a little harder to waste. I mean, plenty of ways to waste time working from home, but but you, you're not standing around the water cooler going to meetings. So I think, I think there's a lot of self-awareness and a lot to be learned from the experience if the people are willing to, to take notes. Right. It's kind of like an active med- meditation. And there's that Blaise Pascal quote, I think all of humanity's problems stem from an inability to sit quietly in a room alone or something along those lines. And so this type of active meditation, I think, is pretty, pretty important. Jerry, when it comes to your work in the future, do you see any way that this is going to inform your work? You know, are you going to get back to writing with kind of a renewed vigor? Um, I I, I don't say like get back to it, like you're not doing it, but uh, you know, is this like re-inspiring you? How, how's this changing your mindset about future projects you take on? Well, in a couple of ways. I mean, I I will say that it's been very fulfilling to be a writer right now because I think, you know, the emails that I get from people and knowing that, you know, I'm not a physician and I'm not in the healthcare field, but yeah, the other day I signed 20 books and mailed them to healthcare workers who are working in the outbreak. And I think stories are something that uh, they do, you know, get us through the dark periods of our life. I mean, they're kind of there for, I mean, the reason I wanted to become a writer is that, that, you know, I was working in a high stress environment that I was kind of burnt out on and, and reading is what I loved. I mean, I would come home and read science fiction and it it was my escape. And I think that reading is that for a lot of people right now. And um, so it's kind of cool. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sitting at home making up these stories and, and um, you know, around the world, there's right now hundreds of thousands of people reading these things. And that's, that's pretty thrilling. Uh, so, and on the creative side, I mean, I do think about 
ideas becomes my problem and not too few ideas, too many ideas. So it becomes a challenge of picking which one to go after. Because if you're writing one idea, the opportunity cost is you're not writing this one over there. I'm also sort of thinking about well, what is the what does the market want? What's the appetite? I mean, all my books have featured an apocalypse. I mean, that is probably something that says something about me, <laughs> potentially the world always ends, but, <laughs> but we always put it back together. And sure. I don't, you know, I was talking to my agent about this the other day and I, you know, I wonder about writing something else or if, but you know, the, my apocalyptic books are selling really well for whatever reason. Um, so I do creatively think about, if the psyche of the reading public is going to change, and I don't know, um, time will tell, but I kind of use my own interest as a guide, but yeah. Sure. And when you are consuming information broadly, I'm curious, what type of filter are you using these days? Are you just selecting books? Are you spending that much time with online news? Are you trying to do a detox from news? Uh, are you sticking mainly with sci-fi? How that, how's that breakdown look? of the information you're consuming? Well, I'm reading, reading more than ever, you know, and, um, and it's been, it's been an escape for me, like, uh, like it was in the past and, and I needed it. As far as the news, I've, I've actually, you know, looked more towards the local news and tried to keep a, a handle on, you know, the case count here in Wake County and things are going pretty well in Wake County where Raleigh is. I mean, relatively. And so, I mean, I feel like the national news I've kind of uh, taken a break from. I mean, I think we're in a very partisan environment and, and everything you read almost has to be filtered through a lens and you have to take it in context. Um, so I don't particularly like that. I mean, I think um, you know, people pick and choose the data these days and it's um, it, frankly it makes things fighting this outbreak a good bit harder. I mean, when we shouldn't be pointing fingers, we should be collaborating and figuring out how we can help our neighbors. And there's this debate on the balance of what's good for the economy and what's good for the citizens health. And I think that's a fair debate and ought to be had, but um, I do not think frankly that organizing in large groups is the way to talk about it right now. Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to writing broadly, did you set any type of goal for yourself in terms of uh, total output you were looking to hit? Are you thinking about um, new mediums a lot these days? Are you thinking about shorter books, longer books? How are you thinking about creating uh, future stories and novels that you're writing? Well, that's a good question. And it is something that I've given increasingly more thought to. And the reason is that I feel that reading needs to evolve. I think it needs to, the big challenge that we face, I think as writers is to stay relevant in the, in the entertainment landscape. So when I'm writing a book, I'm, you know, I'm not thinking about, is this book engaging enough to be in this genre or, you know, is it as compelling as the other books? I'm thinking, can I write a book that someone is willing to turn off Netflix or Hulu and pick up this book and it's just as entertaining, right? Cause I think that's to me in my, so my genre is sci-fi thr- thrillers. And I think there's this huge opportunity to bring more readers in. If we can make the books, you know, more engaging, I think they've got to move faster and they've got to um, really tell that story. I, mean, I, I really think that story more than anything, more than ever is what readers are starved for. There's always this balance of style versus story, right? Or, 
substance. And um, that's kind of where I am in, in my thinking. And I've been toying with, you know, interactive novels and some other new things, but it's a challenge for me because, I mean, one of the reasons I'm a writer and not still doing startups is that I did tend to get distracted. Right. And I think, I mean, when you're running a startup, you need to be pretty much laser focused. And for me, it was always, all right, what's the new thing? What's the new feature we can add to this? And so I do, you know, um, I think the playing with the formats is something that I kind of, is, is my passion project, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about how do we make reading more engaging? I, I really think as writers, that's the challenge. Right. And when it comes to reading on Kindle or digital devices, do you think that there's a trade-off there? I still don't hear this talked about much um, when it you know comes to physical book and that tactile feedback. There's some research that shows that the re- memory retention is a bit higher. Um, do you think that there's a big trade-off when you start consuming information or a story on a digital device? I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen the studies. I mean, it, you know, we know that um, if you're learning something and you write it down, you know, your retention level is much higher. And I think... Um, for myself, when I'm reading nonfiction, I prefer print and I do, you know, tend to take notes. I very rarely read nonfiction on Kindle. It's usually if I can't get a copy of the book. But I think for the vast majority of, say, genre fiction and for voracious readers, the Kindle is the killer app. I mean, it makes sense. You can, you can get the books quickly. Uh, the economics of it are very different than, you know, printing a book, shipping it to your house, and then you've got to store it, Right. Um, so I think, and, you know, for most genre fiction, the, the reader just wants to, they just want that story and the escape. So the retention, I mean, I get a lot of emails from people who are rereading the books, you know, two, three, four times. <laughs> and I mean, it's thrilling, but I do think that some of them might say, well, you know, I like forgetting it so I can go back and re-experience it. So in that That's sense, awesome. maybe the Kindle is, has some advantages. Sure. When it comes to direct experiences in your life, do you view that your best stories come from direct experiences? Do you view them as coming from a combination of ideas where, you know, you don't know where quite know where that idea came from? Um, How does that evolution of your stories like how does that happen and how do you view that as happening? Well, it's a good question. It's something I haven't thought about a lot, but it is. I mean, obviously. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan and the Harry Potter books in the, in the seventh book, we really learned that, you know, Voldemort, the bad guys cut off, cut his soul into seven pieces and hidden them. And I didn't really understand that until I became a writer, but, I, and I think in so, to some degree, whether she knew it or not, she was saying that as a writer, she had cut off seven pieces of her soul in writing these books. Cause you put a little of yourself in there. And I think, I do think that that makes the story more authentic and that readers can, sense it right like the you got to do the work the research and i think the characters need a little bit of either you or someone you know really well to make their reactions credible and to make it feel real i mean i'm writing science fiction thrillers that are pretty fantastical in scope and and content and and the arc of the stories but but i do think that you got to know your stuff and i do really for the primary characters I, I think th- I think they work better if there's some part of you. And I and I would add to you, the other part of your question is how much of it's new. And I think there's got to be enough new in there that you don't know to keep yourself excited to write it, right? Because, I mean, 
all writers to some extent can write in cold blood, but it's probably best when you're, you have that little thrill of some discovery and something new and, and you're, you're along with the reader on the journey and there's some surprise and some element of, um, of spontaneity. I think that's good. And so are you, are you saying there that the spontaneity is based on the fact that, you know, you don't quite know what these characters are going to do? Are these, you know, characters based on people or, you know, portions of your psyche that you want to, ex- you want to explore more or, you know, hang out more with? Is that a, a fair way of breaking it down? Definitely. Yeah. And I, yeah. I mean, the way I work is I, I write really detailed outlines. I mean, I've got to know that the the ending is there and that it's really pretty strong. And then along the way, I mean, the characters, you know, if you develop a character that you really have a good sense, a good grasp of what they would do, inevitably they're going to do something that wasn't in the outline. And you're going to say to yourself, man, you know, that is the correct thing for that character to do. And I didn't see it until now. And you, you couldn't have because now you've gone you know, 300 pages with that character and you kind of know them a lot better than you did when you were sketching things out. Um, but that's some of the fun stuff. I mean, it creates more work, but I think it's worth it. Sure. When it comes to writing, what is the most surprising thing that you discovered about yourself that you had no idea about going into the field? I went to, you know, Chapel Hill for college and I was a business major and I never, I never much liked uh, studying. I mean, it was a, reasonably good student. But I'll, I'll say that the part that I've is a little surprising about writing is all the research I really enjoy now. I mean, I love learning about the new stuff and kind of compiling and saying, you know, what can I put in here and there? And I mean, that's just, I guess, my inner geek uh, coming out, but that stuff is pretty cool. And and I do like writing. I mean, I think, I think if you, if you want to know if writing is right for you as a career, I think you, you, to some extent, have to really like doing the work. You got to like sitting alone and stringing words and sentences and paragraphs together. And, and I think if you don't, you know, the, the job can weigh on you over time. Right. But and so I, I do like the research. And I do like the work of of writing. When you are working with your team of editors, of beta readers and folks like that, how do you walk that fine line of staying true to your intuition and your ideas for the story versus allowing outside input and suggestions. Is there any type of filter you use or is it just something that, you know, you get better at as time goes on? How do you balance that? It's a tough balance. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you got to trust your gut. And I think for me, maybe this is a luxury, but I consider myself to be my ideal reader. So I think it would be far tougher if you were writing to market and if you were writing for a market that you knew somewhat, but not intimately. So in my mind, I think as a reader, um, does this thrill me? Does this feel credible? Is this right? And the great thing about beta readers and the editor is they, they are going to bring a new perspective to the work. I mean, they come from different walks of life. They have different life experiences. So there's some things that either they say, yeah, I don't understand what this means, or I don't, this struck me as inappropriate, or this is the, this was, you know, unexpected in a bad way and not credible. And, and so I think the great thing, I think my feeling is as a writer, Stephen King talks about this in his book. I mean, we're, our job is to tell the truth and really to get the, the reader to suspend disbelief. And so the thing you learn is that everyone has different thresholds of disbelief suspension, right? Like there's a point in the story that you might say, 
well, I can no longer believe this is happening, you know? And there's a point in the story where I say, all right, I also can no longer believe. And so you have to, I think as a writer, the editing phase is to say, okay, you know, where are we crossing the line? What, what is credible and what makes this a better book? And, and I, you know, I tend to go for it in my books. I tend to push the envelope and I want those big reveals and big surprises. And, and over the last 10 years, I think part of my growth has been trying to figure out where the line is. So when it comes to balancing family life and work life, are you a fan of work-life integration? Do you have, you know, stark cutoffs? How do you try to stay healthy and balanced uh, with your family and work? It's really tough. I mean, I think that as writers, you know, we tend to be creative types and that you know, discipline tends to not be our strong suit. I think that's true of me too. And, and setting boundaries, like I mean, I have, I think physical boundaries are helpful. I think if there's a place that you go and work, that's immensely helpful. And if you can set hours, I think that's good too. The problem with writing is that yeah, you know, sometimes you get a little inspiration. It's like, I, I need to write this right now. Cause if I, it's going to be a lot better writing it right now than it might be tomorrow or a week from now. The other thing about writing that makes it so challenging is that momentum, at least for me is, is important. If I'm drafting something, I do need to be writing on it pretty much every day. I mean, having starts and stops, I think hurts the final product and it, it definitely weighs on my productivity, but I do I mean, I, my sense is there's a couple of things you can do that will really help you. And then the rest is it's a custom fit. You got to figure out what works for you. Um, and that's a lot of trial and error. Jerry, when you are thinking about the future, are there any topics or pieces or areas of study that are keeping you excited and keeping you really optimistic? Um, when you have those dark days or dark nights of the soul, how are you staying optimistic about humanity's future? There are things on the horizon that I think are both incredibly promising and incredibly concerning. I mean, if you look at the rise, what I see is virtual reality be, becoming potentially a big part of our life in the next 20 years. And I, my concern is that, you know, it can, it can become problematic. I mean, you see what, you know, opioid addiction, I think is going to look pretty mild compared to what, what happens with VR. Uh, artificial intelligence, you know, I do worry about um, the potential for job losses, but I also think there's huge potential. I mean, if you look at the implications for anything from genomic medicine to um, self-driving cars, I mean, it's, uh, we stand to reap huge benefits. And then, you know, on down the line, like 3D printing is something that I'm enormously excited about, invested in. Um, and then, you know, just to mention genomic medicine, again, I think we're on the my sense is we're on the cusp of some pretty big breakthroughs in what's possible in medicine and customizing medicine to a person's genome and, and having treatments that, that were unimaginable 10 or 20 years ago. So I think the future looks bright, but I think it's not without risk. And so if you ask me what the big challenge is, I think the big challenge now is that we have these massive corporations that, you know, in terms of their scope and their impact on our daily lives are huge and they're going to push the boundaries of technological possibilities. And I think that needs to be balanced with the greater good of our species. And, and so that might mean putting some limitations on AI and robotics and virtual reality and, and figuring out where, where to draw the line. I, th I think that's a challenge for governments. I couldn't agree more. And there seems to be this large void in the elected body where technological education or literacy 
or future literacy, however you want to define that, um, is either not happening or where political systems seem to be just uh, closed off to this. Um, you know, do you agree? And if so, how do we go about, you know, establishing a future literacy where both the public and politicians and corporations can kind of get on the same page? Yeah, it's it's very tough because, I mean, the to some extent, the the corporations who are going to invent the future um, have a better a much clearer understanding. They have the vision of what, what the future looks like and, and sharing that vision openly with the government perhaps may not be in their best interest because as the, the government knows what's going to happen, you know, they may want to start putting more regulation on them. I think what's needed, frankly, is to recruit politicians who've worked inside of these tech companies who also have a vision of the future and are unabashed in their, you know, drive for the greater good, right? And just are willing to really stand up. And that's a new kind of politician. I mean, the, I think we're still in this kind of, you know, industrial economy where, you know, the companies you hear politicians focus on and their, a lot of their airtime, you know, seems to be dedicated still to, you know, either manufacturing and farming. That's right. I mean, that, those are the big employers and there's a lot of jobs there and those people vote. But I don't, I think the future is ahead and we need to, it needs to be a little shift in focus. Couldn't agree more. Jerry, thanks so much for being generous with your time today. This has been an awesome interview. Is there one piece of advice, call to action, or maybe just a larger thought that you want to leave our listeners with? What I would say is that uh, the next eight to 12 months are going to be maybe the most challenging of people's lives. And I think what's required to some extent is just discipline and constant vigilance. And I would encourage, I mean, what we're doing in my household is we're trying to make decisions that we're going to be happy with in a year. And it means looking at our risk factors and you know, my wife and I are, are very healthy. We have a three-year-old daughter who's also fairly healthy, but my wife's parents live two doors up from us. So when we think about our exposure to this virus, we see it through the lens of making them safe and making decisions that, that impact those around us. And I think sometimes it's easy you know, to lose sight of that. But I, I do think that's one of the challenges thinking about what are my risk factors and what are, you know, who am I impacting around me? Wise words. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us and everyone listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Sophia Bush and you've been listening to Hidden in Plain Sight from mission.org. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. In today's data-driven world, every company, big or small, new or old, is sitting on terabytes of unused, untapped, and unknown data. Splunk helps turn all that data into action. Using cutting-edge AI and machine learning, Splunk delivers real-time predictive insights that will help you on your mission to change the world. With solutions for IT, security, Internet of Things, and business operations, Splunk empowers people to make faster, better decisions and take action to get things done. It's time for our data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Check it out at Splunk.com.